The average American life expectancy is 78.7 years. For police officers, it's 10 years less. Police work impacts our relationships, quality of life, and mental health. It's our moral and fiduciary responsibility to fix that which has been broken in the service of others. Today, we're joined by Conrad Weaver. Conrad is an award-winning movie producer who produced the documentary film, PTSD 911. The film, which premiered last November, examines the lives of various first responders and shows the kinds of traumatic events that they experience. I am Patrick Yeos, National President of Fraternal Order Police. This is The Blue View. Well, Conrad, thank you for joining us on A Blue View. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I didn't start that way, but uh, I started with a degree in psychology. And my my path to where I'm at today took a winding road. And But I always had a camera in my hand. Growing up, uh, my dad had a film camera that I learned how to shoot photos on. and and But I never thought about making it a career, even though I, in... in in college, I was a I was the head photographer for the newspaper and was involved in that. And it wasn't until I was actually working for a church doing some media work, and they they kind of said, "Hey, let's let's produce a video." And so they kind of leaned to me for that and discovered, "Hey, I really enjoyed this, and I'm good at it." And in 2008, I was kind of getting itchy feet, and I was like, "I need to do something else." And so I actually launched a company. And well, let me back up. In 2005, I had an opportunity right here in this city to do a behind-the-scenes mini documentary about the security at the presidential inauguration. And a company called Securitas hired me to do this work. And I had a Secret Service pass. I thought I was big stuff. You know, got to go to the presidential balls and the, and the parade route. And cool. and I discovered, hey, I can I can tell stories through this this medium of video. And out of that, I launched my company. And in 2010, I produced a, my first documentary, my first feature-length documentary. I was reading a blog one day about these harvesters, these farmers who travel from Texas to Montana with their combines and their families. And it was interesting. And my wife looked over my shoulder and she said, you should make a movie about that. <laughs> and so I did. I produced my first documentary, did really well. I ended up winning an Emmy Award, which was right. pretty cool. And that kind of led me down the path of producing documentaries. And my first two films, that one and the and, and the one following that, kind of took me away from home for long periods of time and wasn't really, uh, you know, my wife was supportive, but she was like, you know, can you be at home a little more? And so I, the the opioid crisis raised its its head and with some family, with, with some, not family members, but with some friends of mine. And so... I decided, you know what, I need to tell this story. And so yeah. we, it was a story that was local in Maryland, uh, a kind of a ubiquitous story across the country. But as a part of that, I was invited to do ride-alongs with law enforcement and with fire and EMS. And on one of those ride-alongs with a police officer, we were called to a fatal overdose scene. And it was just Tuesday for the first responders, uh, a typical scene for them. Uh, but for me as a civilian, it it wasn't. It was a shocking scene. I wasn't used to seeing that. Yeah. And on my ride home that day, I started thinking about this and how it affected me. And then in the days following, I started thinking about how those scenes affect first responders. Yeah. yeah. And I talked to the officer who was on I was on scene with and said, tell me about that. You guys were kind of joking and just kind of laughing and, you know, casual about this scene. She said, that's totally how we deal with it. Yeah. I'm asking. 
Yeah, yeah. And so I looked into, okay, what is this thing? Is Does trauma affect first responders? And of course, I uncovered this whole problem. Yeah. And in the next few months and years that followed that, I did some deeper research and, and learned that, hey, this really is a problem that affects all of our first responders. Right. And then I looked for other projects. This was about four years ago. You know, I couldn't find much out there that, that told the story. Lots of documentaries about veterans and their challenges, but not much about first responders. So I decided to make a film. Conrad, I couldn't agree more. Uh, let's, let's see a preview of, of PTSD 911. I went to a really dark place in my mind where suicide became an option. I was going through a divorce. I had lost a lot of relationships with people and I wasn't, I was isolating. While I was trying to heal from the traumas that had put me in the position that I was in, I suddenly lost all the support of all the guys I worked with. Yeah, shots fired. Shots fired on I felt guilty that, that he died. About 15 minutes in, I'm just listening, and all you can hear is just people screaming. I was only two years into my career with Boston at this point. I was so hypervigilant, and, and I couldn't shut my brain off. They told me that I had PTSD, and that they would give me some pills that would basically remove me from my feelings. First responders are the toughest of the tough. They're the strongest of the strong, the most resilient people in our society. And they heroically sign up for these very, very difficult jobs in which, as a society, we outsource all of our trauma to them. You know, I look at, uh, at, at first responders, and, uh, you know, one thing every first responder has in common, a couple things. One, they had a psych, a psych evaluation sure. before hiring and a physical assessment. And then he came into law enforcement, and it didn't take long to recognize that people within this field, um, just a repetitive exposure to the, the trauma that they see, uh, takes its toll on them. And, and uh, you know, it, 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 put them, it, it puts people in law enforcement, in, in many cases, if, they don't, if they're not grounded, they don't have the services and the resources needed in order to be able to, st to stay ahead of this. You know, the agencies that recognize this and do make it part of their training is great. Unfortunately, it's not mainstream. So what we're seeing is officers who, who develop some, you know, maybe some, some uh, destructive lifestyles sure. uh, and actions. Really, what we fail to recognize is that they were broken in the service of others. And uh, when something's broken in the service of others, we have a moral and fiduciary responsibility to fix it. Absolutely. So I appreciate you tackling this, uh, this, this issue. And you know, I personally uh, know a number of friends uh, just didn't see it coming who, uh, who took their own lives. Uh, you know, the, the weight of the world can make even the strongest in these buckle. Yeah. So, so what, a, what a, a very necessary topic to, to bring awareness to. Um, tell us a little bit about, you talked about, you know, recognizing uh, when you were there and, and, and how, how it affected you uh, and, and law enforcement officers. Tell us how it, it kind of evolved into, into this, uh, to this production. Sure. Well, you know, in my early research, I was talking to, so I live in Emmitsburg, Maryland, which is the home of the National Fire Academy, the National okay. Emergency Training Center. And so a lot of fire people in our town. Yeah. And so there's an old timer that I'm friends with. And so I went to talk to him and he said, man, in my day, it was suck it up. Here's a beer. Rub dirt on it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I thought, wow, 
you know, if you look at, at the, the rates of alcoholism among all first responders, it's uh, you know, above the national norm. Suicide rates, as we know, are above national norm. You know, rates of depression and, right. and divorce and all those, all those numbers are high. And so as I started looking into this film, we, we were like, okay, how do we find these stories? You know, how do we get people willing to tell their story, you know, you can we find someone who's willing for us to kind of track along with them to see where they're at? And I first talked to the officer who I was with on that fatal overdose scene. And she said, oh, I'll do anything I can to help you tell this story. Okay. Not realizing that she would be one of the main characters in mm. my story. Yeah. And so that kind of opened the door to, to me saying, okay, yes, I want to do this. And so then we just had to look at you know, when you make a film, you have to figure out how to pay for it and how to pay for production. So you reach out to people, stakeholders. So we raised some money. And I, then we, we set up a website with a form on there for people to share their stories. And we launched a, a social media page and that drew people to the website. And we started getting stories from all over the country. Uh, some people we had to vet and, you know, they wanted their 15 minutes. Yeah. You kind of had to figure that out. Uh, but I have a co-producer, uh, Nancy, who who I would send these people to, and she would do Zoom interviews with them. And then actually, our first trailer that we produced, our little teaser, was all through Zoom interviews. This yeah. is during COVID. That's cool. And, you know, COVID was a, uh, obviously, it was a horrible thing for all of us. But in, in, in this project, it, it kind of helped because it shut down all my other work. So it allowed me to focus on this yeah. and to build those relationships and to... Uh, to to build those uh, to those stories, and through those stories that we received, we we landed on three individuals who we decided to to follow, and they said yes. We have a firefighter in Anaheim, a, a dispatcher out of Boston, who was part of the Boston Marathon bombing event, and then the local police officer here in in, in Frederick, Maryland, and so we we tracked with them over the last three years as to their journey. And, you know, their journey is, isn't uh, all wrapped up in a pretty bow. Yeah. It's, it's uh, ongoing. Uh, it's messy. Um, in the middle of production, my firefighter out of Anaheim called me. And he had been doing really well. He had been helping others, been getting others into treatment and serving his community. And he called me and he was like, you probably don't want me in your film anymore. I was like, Why? said, well, I picked up again, started drinking again. Yeah. He said, I messed up. He said, I'm in a bad place. And he was in a bad place. And I looked at him and I said, Maddie, that's exactly why I want you in this story. Yeah. Because that's the story. The weight of the world will make you even the strongest in these buckle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I decided to track with these folks wherever that took us. Hopefully it, it would end well. But I thought it was important enough to, for the general public to really understand. You know, in this world where law enforcement is criticized and shot at and, you know, all the terrible things. Demonized. You know, demonized. It's, and it's taken its toll. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I feel the general public needs to know, hey, these are real human beings. They have feelings. They have emotions. They have families. They have lives outside of, you know, their work. And we need to let people know that these are people who, who really do care. There's always bad apples in the bunch. You know, every profession. 
every profession. I mean, there's bad filmmakers, you yeah. know. Yeah. But uh, and a problem but, with law enforcement is, is you know, at least in our role, I mean, we, we're called to fix everything, right? You know, we're try, we're we're referees in in, in you know some sometimes very messy lives, sure. and uh, you know it's hard to it's hard to come out on top of, of those situations. Yeah. It's just the nature of our business, yeah. and because of that, as that demonization has taken its toll as well. Right. I mean, we find ourselves. You know, I, I think it's such a timely topic. I I look at myself. You know, thirty six years in law enforcement. And I remember when I first started. You know, it was that oh, rub rub some dirt on it. Sure. You're fine. I, I remember my own traumatic, you know, incidents and uh, and, and and how they were kind of downplayed and mm-hmm. thinking. You know. I'm just trying to rationalize these these things myself, and and you know, obviously, I I, I did okay with them, mm-hmm. um, but but I, I it it's not hard to recognize uh, how people struggle. Yeah. You, you look at traumatic events and see how it changed people. I, just the average person, a traumatic event. We we know that a traumatic event can change somebody both physically and mentally. Yeah. Uh, what average American might have one or two of those in their lifetime? Right. Well, a law enforcement officer might have that in a week. Sure. And somehow we can't just sniff our badge and make all that go away. Yeah. We're human too. And I, I look at the damage that's done. I think it's great that we're, we're having this discussion and it could not be more timely. Uh, I still think that there are a lot of agencies out there that are only checking a box because now it's the thing to do, but right. not looking at the bigger problem here. The bigger right. problem here is we lose more officers every year to, to suicide than we do any felonious action. Right. I don't want to have to chase someone that it's already in that place. I think that we really need to do is focus so much energy in the front end and start giving conditioning officers to deal with this trauma long before it becomes you know, cumulative to the enough that they, they reach to these destructive lifestyles. You know, if you, if you buy an, an, an $80,000 Mercedes, what are you going to do with that car? Take care of it. Take care of it. No, no question. That's right. You're going to get the oil changed yeah. at least every 5,000 miles, yeah. if not more. That's a great analogy because you know, you're right. And law you got to take care of it yeah. because otherwise you're going to have a yeah. seized engine. Now you're going to replace, you know, yeah. you're going to spend $8,000 on a new engine. Preventive, preventive maintenance. Yeah. Right. It's so, so, so it's cheaper on the front end yeah. to take care of it than it is to fix it on the back end. No question. And it's the same with human beings. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's part of my mission with this film is to help city leaders, people who hold the purse strings to agencies, to, to better understand that, to say yes to putting a line item in their budget for wellness. To, to, to provide that for our police agencies, for our fire companies, you know, for our dispatchers, that to, to put these things in, in the budget so that there are resources available for these first responders to, to be trained up front at the academy even, to have these resources put in place at the academy, and then to have that ongoing training yes. throughout their career so that they can thrive and prosper and they don't have to retire at 62 and die at 62, which we yeah. know is the average age. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, you know, it's, it's, you look at this whole journey uh, and, I, and I, I'm just curious uh, of, it takes it takes a really strong person, somebody to lay their lay their soul out for everyone to see and and, and talk about their own challenges and and that they and, and that others can find some some path uh, from their own uh, from their own pain. Uh, I just, what is your takeaway? I mean, you're doing this. I, I you know, I, first off, my hats off to to those that reached out. You know, you, you talked about those that uh, that reached out and and gave, uh, you know, through social media, gave you the platform in order to be able to tell their story. And and look, that's hats off to them. Uh, I love the fact that we're talking about this and not suppressing it. I think that's that's very important. Something therapeutic of just being able to talk to someone uh, of something they probably kept in. But but 
you know, you saw it probably at a much larger level than I think most people do because you had so many that were weighing in and right. and doing this. So you talked about the way you sorted through it, but uh, how did it change you? How did you know? Just someone is looking at the story and just says, "All right, here's a this is something interesting here. I think there's a story to tell." But I'm I'm sure as you dug into it, you realize this is way more complex. And yeah, for sure. And just uh, you know, I think the average person seeing your film will probably. To have the same takeaway from it. Tell me how it changed you, your your thoughts on PTSD yeah. and law now, enforcement in general. As a, as a citizen, I've always seen our first responders, law enforcement, you know, firefighters as the heroes in our communities. You know, I've I've called nine one one before. I've I've had to pick up the phone and call nine one one. And in fact, one morning a few years ago, I did something dumb. I worked out and didn't hydrate, and I was. I was passing out and my son called 911 and the, the paramedics came and they hauled me off in an ambulance. And so I view our first responders as those who take care of our communities. And they, 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 they arrive when you call, that they're just there. No matter what the situation, whether there's bullets flying or there's a fire or there's a tragic accident, they arrive and they show up and, and do the work. No matter what. Why then are we as a community not aware that these things that they engage with are really impacting them deeply? You know, um, that's what it made me aware of that, wow, we are expecting them to show up, expecting them to be professional, expecting them to do their job right, to arrest the right person, to treat the right injury in the right way you know, in a, in a healthy way. So the person recovers, but yet we don't realize that the weight of what they're carrying. And I think it was, uh, it, it was Dr. David Black who I interviewed for the film, uh, the founder of Cortico. And he said, you know, we outsource our traumas to the first responders yeah. as a community. Yeah. And that's what it taught me is that, yeah. that our traumas, our problems, our worst day is now being carried by these first responders. I had a uh, a pretty profound statement. Uh, it's one of my one of our members in uh, Utah. I'd love to take credit for it because it is pretty profound. And uh, but I, I got to give credit to him for for him. He said it's it's impossible to defend humanity and not lose a little bit of your own. Hmm. I mean, if that's not a powerful statement, doesn't doesn't pretty much sum it up. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious as you went through this process. Uh, you know, there's a stigma uh, was associated for so many years. Sure. Uh, and, and I'm just curious of as you went through this process and you look at uh, agencies and you look at individuals, talk about that stigma and how you, where you think we are now uh, in terms of of people being more freely talking about uh, about their feelings and and the struggles because uh, sure. they're real. You know, when I first started this process about four years ago, uh, it was a different world in a way. Uh, I've seen a shift in the conversation. I've seen a more openness to having these conversations. Yeah. But the stigma is still very real. In fact, I can just go back to last week at the National FOP Wellness Summit. After the screening of our film that we had there, we were sitting in the lounge and talking to some some officers there, and we were kind of talking about things. and. And the one officer who was there, uh, after about a half a dozen beers, he said, you know, these things really don't affect me. I'm not, I'm not really impacted by these things. And I thought, but you just downed six beers. Something's affecting you. Yeah. You know, so that thing is still there. It's still that stigma of saying, you know, I'm not okay. 
And I think that's what we need to realize that we're all human beings, officers, you know, as tough as a, as a, as a guy on a SWAT team is, you know, with all the gear, they're still human beings. And, you know, what I hope that this film does is help them understand it's okay to say, you know what, I'm having a bad day. I'm, I'm struggling and I need some help. So I, I wonder if maybe that's, has, yeah, obviously that's part of culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, the long, law enforcement officers, uh, I think by very nature of our business is somewhat cynical sure. uh, because we've seen the worst of humanity and seen the best of humanity. Uh, just trying to reconcile the difference between those two. Uh, and we deal with people that most society would like to think don't exist. Mm-hmm. And occasionally they, they, they're, the, you know, it's our job to keep them out of their lives. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we, we talk about that stigma. We talk about the challenges they have, but um, going through this project, I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of agencies. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk, you know, law enforcement officers, you got those that are more free to talk about, about the struggles that they're having because they are real. Yeah. And those that, that uh, maybe suppress them, they might uh, put them in other buckets and call them something else, regardless right. of what they call them. They're still dealing with the same things. But, uh, you know, so I'm curious, uh, what have you seen, at least through this, uh, your experience of, uh, of the evolution? Uh, well, we talked about the law enforcement officers. We could dive a little deeper into that about how they've evolved into, you know, evolved into to, to be more open about this and kind of laying their soul out there that others may learn from it. But what about agencies? Mm. I mean, that's, a, that's the other side of this i you know i've always you know i put put them in a couple categories one i think those that truly get it and they want to have you know want to have sound programs to try and save those officers and protect that investment they have sure. that, you know that, that you know nice vehicle they bought and want to make sure that it's properly maintained sure. and then there are others that i just i, I wonder if uh, it's just checking a box for their mm-hmm. insurance company to show that right. they've done something what is what was your experience in you know interviewing people and, and how do you, where do you think we are now? Do you think we're making any headway in in that respect yeah. of well, making I've, it more mainstream? Yeah, I've seen both sides of that coin of of the agency that, in fact, the one uh, in in Pinole, California, uh, Chief Neil Gang, uh, he made a comment that really stuck with me. It's like, wow, that's that's really powerful. He said, here at Pinole, he said, and it's a small agency, I think twenty eight or so sworn officers. He said, here at Pinole, we don't have a wellness program. He said, we have a wellness culture. And it goes from the officer on the street to the lady at the front desk to the person who's managing the evidence room. He said, it permeates every part of our organization. And I thought, that's the model. That's it. It needs to permeate every part of it. It it becomes the norm. Right. It becomes the norm to say, you know, hey, Pat, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? You know, yeah. are, are you still drinking as much as you were? Or is that struggle with your wife? Are you, st- are, are you okay? Yeah. You know, to have those conversations and to make it okay. On the other side, we have an agency that, that I'm aware of that, you know, put their officer out. Oh, we don't have, you know, you can take time off. We're not going to pay you. Uh, take time off and, you know, get yourself better. And when you're better, come back. Yeah. You know, and by the way, um, yeah, we don't have any light duty for you. Well, actually, let me carry that further. I think there's, you know, as a, as a point here, if you're, if you're a canine officer and you came in and said that, uh, 
they're keeping your canine. Uh, how many people you think that are going to come forward? That's their partner. I mean, that yeah. bond there is so deep. It goes further than that. Uh, if, if you come forward and say these things, like uh, law enforcement officers struggle every day just trying to pay bills. They're working yeah. a lot of overtime. They're shortage. They're, they're working more hours than they've ever worked before. Right. And you add to that, uh, some of them are still working extra duty because that's how they pay the bills. Right. Um, you know, so... If you if you come forward and it is almost punitive in some places where you know recognizing that they can't come forward because financially they can't afford it right. and you take away some of these bonds some of these things that are really important to them then you really just incentivize absolutely incentivize the uh, the ability to be able to fix these things before they become out of hand or to a worst case scenario yeah there's a great in the film we tell the story of a, a detective with with Garland Police Department in Garland Texas. And, and, and Chief Brian there, he's amazing. He has that same attitude of a, a culture of wellness. And this detective, Mike, uh, at first when we interviewed him, he didn't want, did not want to be on camera. He's just, you know, grizzled old detective, just old school guy, you know, the P in for, for PTSD stands for something else and that kind of attitude. And he said, but then he sat down with, with me and, and told his story. He said, you know, I was... Uh, you know, I was involved in a police-involved shooting where I took a man's life. My life went off the rails for six years, and I thought I was going to be okay because I was tough, and I haven't cried in 20 years, and I'm, I'm okay. But then I realized I wasn't, and then, he, then I went to the chief, and the chief said, we'll do everything in our power to get you well. As long as you haven't committed a crime, you know, in this process, we'll do everything in our power to get you well and back on the street. Yeah. And they did that. Yeah. And, and, here, and here was the difference for him, for this guy that was a tough old guy, you know, old school type of a guy. He said, you know, the chief didn't say, I want you to go see a therapist because I'd have given him the finger and walked out. He said, I have a program for you that I want you to go to and go through this. He said, it was just the choice of words he said the program was a therapist, yeah. but it was the choice of words. Yeah. And it saved my life. That's what this guy said. Yeah. He said it totally saved my life. And because they had a leader who believed in this, yeah. who believed in wellness, who knew. In fact, he says in the film, uh, Chief Brian says, you know, I see these young guys coming in. They're young. They want to save the world. They're tough. And pretty soon they're gaining weight. They're on heart meds. They're going through a divorce. They're drinking too much. And I look, and he says, I look at that and realize it's the job that's doing this. And so it's my responsibility as a leader to fix that yeah. and to make it better. Because we have a moral and fiduciary responsibility Absolutely. to fix that, which has been broken in the service of others. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you add another, another you know, today, the demonization of law enforcement, the, the journey we've been on, you know, for a while now where it's uh, just a cumulative, uh, just attacks. Everything that's wrong in society is put at the feet of law enforcement, and, and we really and going through some tough times. And we, we're in a, a serious time now with recruiting and existential threat that uh, that is not going to be fixed overnight. We have people leaving our profession faster than we've ever, you know, quicker, uh, you know, in in, in, in numbers that have, they, we haven't witnessed ever before. It's scary, and we don't have the best and the brightest taking up coming up and and taking you know being a next wave of law enforcement because it's been demonized so much you know there's two things i think everybody in life wants and i think law enforcement officers fit in that category as well and it really plays into the wellness aspect as well we talked about all of the repetitive damage that's done from trauma 
But there's a, there's a simple one. There's another simple factor that I think everyone wants in life. They want two things. They want to know what they're doing is important and that they're appreciated for doing it. Right. And you take those two away, and that's, that's a struggle in itself. You add it to people that are, are dealing with other trauma that, uh, that's, uh, that's affecting them. You could see where it only makes it worse. And they're working more hours than they've ever worked before. And, you know, I guess it would be hard to see a path forward in, in you know, in, in, in an environment that has been created for our profession. So with that, you know, and, and, and this journey that you've taken in four years of, of, of digging into the lives of people that are struggling and, and what needs to be done, what's your takeaway? What, what, what do we need to do as a society? What does, do our agencies need to do? What does the federal government need to do to recognize the importance of, uh, of officer wellness? Well, you know, in, your, in your perfect world, uh, tell us where you think the path is. What can the federal government do in terms of wellness grants? What can agencies do? What, what needs to be done in order for us to, to get a handle on this and, and recognize the damage that's done, but more importantly, protect, protect those that have protected yeah. Our communities, we owe it to them. And I think that's what we need. We need resources to protect those who protect our communities. We need to, to recognize that, that the challenges that our first responders face and, and the traumas that have impacted so many, and so many are losing their lives by their own hand because of that. And if we want to continue to have healthy communities and have safe communities, to have communities that thrive and prosper, then I think we need to have resources for our first responders to help them thrive and prosper. You know, if, if we're losing law enforcement because of a, you know, various reason, suicide, because of just attrition, because of retiring early, uh, because of the stresses of the job, then we need to look at those stresses and say, okay, how can we mitigate that? What are the resources we can, we can provide them to mitigate those stresses? And I think for, for many, it starts at the academy. And we, we, we highlight this in our film at uh, the Academy for, for Cal Fire. They do some things there that are really out of the box. They, they, they teach these young firefighters uh, wellness techniques like yoga and breathing and all these things so that when they go back, to, you know, when they pass their exams and they go back to their local communities and are serving and they're on a fire, they remember those things. Okay, how to breathe. And they do yoga. They do yoga together. And I had one chief tell me, man, if you'd have told me three years ago that I'd be doing yoga, I'd have laughed at you. <laughs> you know, but now it's yeah. part of my routine because I can see what it does. And so providing those kind of training and resources early on to mitigate those things so you know better how to handle these things. Instead of saying, like some people told me that, oh, when I was in the academy, told me, oh, you're going to see some stuff. That's not training. That was my first day. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I think having that kind of training up front, more than just a four-hour class, more than, yeah. you know, make it a part of the culture. Yeah, it has to be part of culture. I was going to say, it, yeah. it can't, it's not a class. Right. It, it needs to, it needs to be in, in all aspects and it doesn't stop at the academy. If there's not a reinforcement uh, on a regular basis, not just from training, but also the culture within the agency. Absolutely. We're not accomplishing. Um, yeah, look at, uh, let's look at, a law enforcement officer. We hire a person. All right. We do all the background checks. We do all the, everything that's needed. We've spent money on it already. We bring them in. We put them in academy. We put them through training. We spent money on them. We put them through um, field officer training. They, uh, you know, that period of time we spent money on them. By the time we get an officer from from hire, from applicant to where they are, we're talking about a journey that could be five, six years before they become, you know, an effective officer. Mm-hmm. 
um, that's a hell of an investment. Right. You know, so I, I like your analogy about buying a vehicle. If you buy a really nice car, you know, an $80,000 car, in this case, you probably, at this point, before they become an effective officer, you probably have a, you know, a $250,000 car, if sure. not more. Um, where's the protection of that investment? Mm-hmm. You know, if uh, it wouldn't make more sense to, to, to do that preventive maintenance mm-hmm. in, in, not, in all aspects, not just, you know, not just the stresses of the job, but in all aspects. Absolutely. Um, it just seems to me that that's a, a, a very efficient business model that we tend to have sort of lost in the uh, in public service field. You know, one of, the, one of the top stressors for anyone are finances. If you look at, you know, most marriages, a bi- they start, a byproduct start with of other problems. Right, know? exactly. Yeah. And one thing that Chief Neil Gang does in, in Panol, he brings in a financial counselor yeah. within the first two years of a new officer. Right. He said in Panol, it's a suburb of San, of, of San Francisco. They make $80,000 in their rookie year. Yeah. I mean, that's a big paycheck when you It's a big you, paycheck, but it's had not that. that big when you look at the cost well, yeah, of living in that region. Cost of living, yeah. sure. Yeah. But when that officer gets that first paycheck, they're like, oh. Man, I can yeah. afford to go buy a you know yeah. a, 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 new, a new shiny toy, yeah. and pretty soon they find themselves in trouble. So what he does is he brings these financial counselors in, and says, "Hey, if you're going to have a if we're going to have a healthy officer, if we're going to have a culture of wellness, that's it includes great. our finances." Yeah. And I think that's an important aspect that sometimes gets overlooked. Yeah. Great, great information. So if somebody wants to learn a little bit more about uh, about about this film and others about you, about some of the other projects, how would they go about that? Sure. To to learn more about this film and to even bring it to your community, we're rolling it out across the country. Uh, Just go to ptsd911movie.com and there's all the information there. We got, uh, we have screening events coming up. In fact, next week uh, we'll be in California and we'll be in other places around the country over the next few weeks. And then interestingly enough, I'm doing a crazy unconventional film distribution thing this summer i'm riding a bicycle from oregon to maryland really to bring this film to communities across the country on our tour that's awesome so we're doing a coast-to-coast tour for first responders uh, starting in astoria oregon and we have 25 cities earmarked where we're going to do big screening events and so if we're you can go to our website and learn more about that that's awesome uh, about that film and then later this year on october 28th uh, which is National First Responder Day. We're going to do a streaming premiere, and we're hoping to get uh, a little sidebar. We're hoping to get the National Law Enforcement Museum to to host that for us. Yeah. Um, but we're going to do a streaming premiere, and it'll be available widely uh, to all the streamers following that. Well, that's great. Uh, I want to I want to thank you for for taking the time and doing a four-year investment of telling a story. It's so vitally important to our profession and to the men and women who, who suit up and show up every day and make a difference in communities, especially in today's environment. They, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I appreciate the, the efforts you've done. And I want to add one more thing to this. Uh, so we are, with the film, the, the film runs about 84 minutes. So we're also creating a digital toolkit, an educational toolkit to go with the film. Right. So we're putting resources together. Some of them are outtakes from, from interviews that I did. Others are like white papers or PDFs that organizations are giving us to provide with this. And so right. agencies can purchase that toolkit now and have it available to them for training for their, that their members in the, in the years to come. Well, great, great, great information. Appreciate all of your efforts, and and to our viewers, thank you for uh, for, for tuning into the Blue View, where we where we talk about the issues that are so vitally important to men and women who suit up and show up in communities across this country and make a difference every single day. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. 
Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.